Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sonia Hudson and Emily Means take a fresh look at politics the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. Glad to have you with us. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Lindsey Whitehurst, reporter with the Associated Press, Republican State Senator Daniel McKay, and Representative Brian King, minority leader in the Utah House of Representatives. Thank you so much for being with us. Second week of the legislative session is down, lots happening, but I wanna talk about money first since that drives so much. I mean, how often do you wake up and say, if I had a billion dollars, what would I do? But that's kind of your question today too. Senator, I wanna start with you because you have over a billion dollars in excess this year you'll be distributing. Not all of it is ongoing, but some of it is. Talk about what the priorities are with that, with that money that's coming forward. Yeah, thanks. You know, there are a lot of priorities, obviously, and, and they all have to compete, right? I think the number one priority is a building at the University of Utah. Perfect. And then after that, um, you know, really when we're, we're looking at it, uh, if you look at how much money we have, it's, it's a big number. Uh, and if you look at the commitments we've already made, or at least taken off of the table, we've made some pretty big commitments already. So we've already committed, committed almost $350 million to our K through 12 public education system, uh, which includes, you know, a 5% increase uh, for the WPU, which is our, you know, uh, spread out uh, shared number for education. Uh, and we've also committed to fully fund growth like we promised we would and we have for the last 12 years. Um, I can tell you though, as the session moves forward, they're trying to solve a lot of big rocks. And that's where the next priority comes into, once we funded education mm -hmm. and we looked at some of the other employee needs, because in, in, as everybody has seen, employee salaries have increased with inflation as well. And so we're looking at employee salaries and trying to solve those problems across the board. And then I think once we've done all those things, leadership feels like there's probably time or at least room for a moderate tax cut. Mm -hmm. Representative, I wanna talk about the tax cut, but maybe talk about a couple of those priorities, because they're things you've worked on for a long time as well. It's not uh, common uh, to have issues like that resolved so far ahead of time, compensation for state employees and sort of a number worked out for public ed. Right, I think one of the things people need to understand is we have additional money to do some things that have sort of been down lower on the list for years because in large part because of federal funding from the ARPA program and others we now have the ability to fund such things as mental health programs, we can use some of that money for affordable housing and homelessness issues, and uh, we can address such things as uh, Great Salt Lake. I was really happy to hear Governor Cox talking about our dire needs in connection with Great Salt Lake. Those are all things that Democrats support the governor on. I think there's also a fair amount of support within the Republican caucuses in the House and the Senate for doing those things too. We are in he good health budget-wise, largely because of uh, resources available from the federal government arising out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, Lindsay, talk about a couple of these in infrastructure projects because you're right, both sides of the aisle, everything from water, the Great Salt Lake, uh, dealing with our bridges, our roads. Talk about the what you're hearing behind the scenes uh, when it comes to those kinds of projects, because there are a bunch of them on the list. Well, one piece I've been following closely is uh, secondary water metering, um, which maybe doesn't sound as exciting to the general public, right? But especially in the context of the Great Salt Lake, that's really a project that could potentially have impacts going forward. And 
and there's a, a chunk of money, $200 million, is I think what's been discussed, but we'll see how it all plays out. But in terms of it, taking those homes that, that do use secondary water outdoors and actually just metering it, just measuring what water goes onto those lawns and is used in, in those homes and businesses, that could be something that, that, that is a big step towards conservation. That And a lot of those homes that use that secondary water are on that Great Salt Lake watershed. So that's one of the pieces in the puzzle when it comes to saving the Great Salt Lake and what is the action we're going to take to make sure this resource stays as healthy as it can for the, the future of all of us, really. Yeah. Representative, what do you think about that that approach? Because it's, it's, it's about converse, you know, conversation. Right, right. No, conservation. It, 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 it's an amazing thing to see the extent to which just measuring, just letting people know, hey, we're measuring your water use, impacts uh, in a significant way the amount of water people use. The other thing that impacts what water we use is how we price it. And Utah has traditionally for many, many years had a flat pricing structure for our water use in a way that is at odds with our other western states, desert states like us, Nevada, Arizona, uh, California. They all have incremental pricing of water that the more you use, the more quickly and significantly the water prices rise. Not true in Utah, so we need to adjust water pricing to encourage the kind of conservation that we're talking about here. Interesting point. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's super important to make that transition, by the way, from the flat pricing where people get to use whatever they want, right, uh, to shifting more towards a metered use, you know, perspective. It, people say, well, you know, that, that doesn't feel like a conservative thing, and I, I don't know why people should be paying what you know what they're using and how much is available should directly affect the price that is the market 101 and i think it's time for it to apply to water Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that this session. So uh, talk for a second about this, Senator, because you're running the bill. Uh, a lot of talk about uh, income tax reduction. Yeah. Give us the essence of, of what that bill is doing and the potential impact. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, as, as we've put all the big rocks into the budget, kind of the next part as we're looking at revenue uh, is can we afford an income tax cut? And right now I think we've set aside about $160 million already uh, for an income tax cut. Uh, and basically in Utah, you know, it's basically taking the rate down for our income tax. Uh, it will affect both individual and corporate income tax rates, and so both those will come down. Uh, the other part that I think are nuanced that are very interesting uh, that people ought to you know, keep their eye on is last year we made accommodations to like cut back on how much we're taxing Social Security when Social Security is the only form of income, and so we've measured into that. We're going to see an additional commitment to that this year. We're looking, right now I think the number is around 15 million. Uh, the other part that we're looking at is for the first time in Utah, uh, a couple years ago we passed a bill uh, that required employers to submit W-2s, so all employee forms, we, they were, submit those electronically. So by submitting those electronically, we've, we've significantly cut back the incidence of fraud for reporting for W-2 income. And what that's really helped us with is now we're in a situation where we can take that W-2 already verified information and we can apply it to what's called an earned income tax credit. So that a person who is working can qualify for a credit against their taxes at the state level so that they're getting it, you know, a targeted income tax cut at that lower level. And I think when you look at that applying to the um, to our Social Security and then you take that and apply it to uh, our lower or most needy families, and then you look at the broader income tax rate, we're looking at about a $200 million package. Mm. 
Uh, the Democrats, uh, where are you on this income tax? Because there are a couple other proposals you personally were involved in from your side of the aisle. Right. Two points on uh, income tax cuts. People need to remember and realize when we're talking about income tax, we're talking about money being taken off the table for public education, higher education, children, programs addressing children's needs, and programs addressing the needs of individuals with disabilities. So let's be clear about what we're doing here. We're 49th in the country in terms of per pupil spending. Money per pupil is not the end all and be all in terms of the quality of education. We all know that. But we also know that we've got a long way to go to bring up ourselves to a level that I think most people would feel is acceptable. So we're wary of income tax cuts at all, number one. But number two, we believe that income tax cuts should be directed toward those who need them the most. And I'm encouraged actually to see Republicans from the governor over to my legislative colleagues coming around ideas that we have Democrat, as Democrats have uh, promoted for years, such as earned income tax credit. Senator McKay mm -hmm. talks about earned income tax. It's a great idea. I've run earned income tax credit bills two or three times in my time at the legislature, and Democrats have supported them because they're aimed at the people who need them the most. Similarly, when we're talking about uh, providing relief, tax relief for individuals on foods tax, we'd like to cut the sales tax on food completely. I think that's the most effective way of addressing and helping people who are making tr having trouble making ends meet, literally putting food on the table. I like that better than the governor's grocery tax credit idea uh, because it's a more effective and direct way of addressing the needs of people who are struggling. Uh, we just want to see any income tax or any tax cuts at all directed toward people who need them the most, as opposed to just cutting income tax rates from uh, 4.95 to 4.85. How long can we talk about taxes before people want to throw us off the, <laughs> change the channel? Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Lindsay, maybe you could address that very question, because I know you're connected to the community so well. How is this being received, these conversations when you have a surplus of funds, uh, and you know, some of them are a little more targeted. We see some of the big um, priorities already funded. How is this being received with the people you are interviewing? What do they want? Well, I think you know, it's, it's that time of year where people are starting to get their W-2s in the mail. They're starting to think about taxes, and, and nobody enjoys it, right? And it's something that is, I think, especially complicated this year. So I do think that getting uh, too much into the details can start to turn some folks off, right? But I do, I also think that people are looking at inflation, they're looking at some uh, prices for essentials being higher, and when they can feel some kind of relief, I think that's that's important for a lot of folks, you know, and I think that, that for both both lower income people and, and more middle income people, that that's something that's very much on their mind. So as much as those those, that relief can be connected with some of the uh, some of the other pinches that people are seeing on their household budgets. I think that that ends up being uh, important in people's minds. Lindsay makes a great point, right? Mm -hmm. the, the nice thing about this whole the whole package is there's really going to be something in it for everyone. And, and, if you, and, and, you know, interestingly, I'm getting feedback from people who say it's just not enough. You have a billion dollars of additional income, and so it's, it's just not enough. Can you do more? And you know, I totally understand that feeling. If you look at where we've been at as a state, I can see our income numbers continually grow. We've incentivized jobs here in the state of Utah consistently over the last 20 years. And so, yeah, we're seeing a lot of economic job growth and that kind of thing. So we're seeing upward pressure on wages finally in Utah. One of the things that makes it difficult is we also live in a Republican state, and if you raise or if you decrease taxes so much that in two years you have to come back and raise taxes, that gets pretty tough. That's a tough conversation. Brian's been there, and now Brian would love to raise taxes every day, and that's a totally different story for oh, both anyway, of us. I don't have to put up with it. <laughs>
No, I mean, the reality is there's, people sometimes don't realize the extent to which government services and government programs really are effective at addressing the needs of individuals in their day-to-day -day lives, whether it's educating our children or whether it's cleaning up our air, whether it's addressing the needs of Great Salt Lake. Those are things that we rely on our government to do. And I know we tease each other. Uh, Senator McCain and I have a great relationship, and I say, you just hate government. Why do you want to be an elected official at all? But the reality is there's a balance that you have to strike here in terms of wise use of taxpayer money, while at the same time not neglecting things that are essential. Yeah, uh, let's get into a couple of those items where government is getting involved in a couple of these other things in the community. And we're gonna start with you, Senator, because we've, since our last program, masks are no longer, those mandates are no longer in effect. You're the one that ran that, that joint resolution in the Senate side. Talk about that for just a moment, because I wanna get through the impacts throughout the state because that has passed. You know, no, uh, I have been in the legislature, this is my 11th legislative session. And uh, in those 11 years, I don't know that I've received more email on both sides of an issue than I have on masks. And that that is, I, would, I went back and looked in my email since the beginning of the pandemic to today. No other item eclipses the input and the outreach that I've had on masks. It is amazing to see people debating how much government they want and where they want to draw the line and whether or not a mandate's appropriate, whether, you know, where can the government tell you what to do in a health emergency and how do you balance that, right? And I think what everybody decided in the beginning is they were kind of willing to go along with it as, as you know, as a trial thing to see if we could like, tamper things down. And what we saw throughout the world, actually, was that mass mandates in different places or different remedial health measures that were taken, there, there really wasn't a difference in spread. It just really changed, you know, the spikes were just in different locations, depending on whether or not you're a gateway state in the United States, you know, Florida, New York, uh, California, those states saw the spikes the first because they're gateway states for the rest of the country, okay? Uh, and then you look, you know, follow the spikes as they trend through. But the one thing that was clear is that mass, from a trend line perspective, didn't really negatively or positively kind of move the needle on, on infections or, or that kind of thing. And I think that's where you got to where people said, well, when this next mask mandate came out, they said, uh-uh, we're not doing it. And I say they, it's my part of the valley. I think I'm currently the most popular, like, political figure for undoing the mask mandate. If I was living in Brian's area, I'm pretty sure I would be drawn and quartered somewhere near State Street, right? And, and that's, that would be the end. And so it's really interesting to see that divergence. And I'm perfectly happy to put that mass conversation in a personal decision, personal responsibility, and, and leave it there and let people make that decision for this pandemic. But what the Republicans are not perfectly happy doing, and this is the thing that gave us the grievance, Jason, is they're not perfectly happy letting the local uh, authorities, public health authorities, school districts, cities, and counties come up with their own determination about how to approach it. And that's what gave us great heartburn. We're listening to public health experts, those mayors, whether it's Mayor Mendenhall or Mayor Wilson in Salt Lake County, or the Park City Mayor, the, the County Council in Summit County, they're the ones who are listening to their public health authorities and getting word about what's best for their areas. And we've always believed in local control until we want to control the locals. We did it on this very issue last year when we said we're gonna leave it up to the locals, as Senator McKay says, and we just didn't feel as Democrats that there was just justification to come up uh, to the legislature and cut off 
for a relatively short time frame when the mask mandate was in place, override that local authority and the public health experts who were advising those local mayors. I don't disagree, actually, with Brian, and 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 I want to, you know, I want to, my hat's off to him because it's it's great to hear Democrats talk about local control. I'm looking forward to the next public lands debate. The the big issue that I, you know, that I'm I'm I constantly think we have to balance is the most local decision is the living room right where families sit together they make decisions and i think trying to make decisions any anytime you get outside of that living room to make decisions and government's making the decision for the living room it just gets really messy and that's what we saw with the mass i, I love our local officials i think mayor wilson mayor jenny wilson did the best that she could given the circumstances that she had and, and following health professionals is frequently a great idea I will just say, if, as people were balancing the utility of the mask versus the other decisions they have to make in their life, they weren't willing to do it. And that's, that is why, I think, when, from a state perspective, when we're trying to balance that, that's the question we're trying to answer. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, in your conversations with elected officials, how are they balancing this? Uh, how well are they doing in the public eye, but also internally? Because even right here, we saw the question came down to a little bit of there's the policy, but it's also the people they represent and where they are living. Masks are incredibly political, right? As, as Senator McKay referred to, it's, it's, and you really do need that geographic change just going from one town to the next along the Wasatch Front, which is, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of a mind bender, right? The, the, the differences that you can see. Um, and I think one other piece of this that some of the Salt Lake County leaders mentioned, including the couple of Republicans who felt like this mask mandate was the best thing for their community, was the, the getting out of these high quality masks, the KN95s, things like this, to make sure that you know the people who, who, who need and want to wear them have actually quality masks that are more effective in the Omicron variant. Um, that's another kind of piece to all of this is, is, is that accessibility part of it, that, um, that and for testing and things like that too. So I think that's something else that's kind of on people's minds is how do we get the right tools into the hands of the people that need them? One, one thing I'd say in connection with that, Jason, is that Lindsay touched on is I don't agree with this idea that I've heard some of my colleagues talk about that masks don't matter, they don't make a difference, they don't curb or slow the spread. That's, that's not something public health experts and the best evidence indicates. In fact, Omicron especially, being as so highly transmissible, does create a challenge for all of us, but it is absolutely true that high quality masks worn consistently and worn effectively have a significant effect on reducing the spread. And you can see that in red states versus blue states in terms of death rates per capita, transmission and new infections per capita. It does make a difference to mask up. You wanna know what makes a real difference in public health? People eating better, exercising, mental health and, and a healthy situation, right? Th those are things that really improve public health. And yet we haven't yet turned those decisions over to our, our medical professionals, mm -hmm. right? And that's, to me, the hard part, honestly, in all of this debate. I don't want to disagree with Brian at all about whether or not experts have it. In fact, I don't even want to have the debate anymore. What I want is for medical recommendations and for me to be able to make those decisions. There's nothing wrong, honestly, with having a different opinion. The only thing wrong is when government steps in and tells you you have to do it a certain way. Mm -hmm. uh, 
let's let's stay on that theme for just a, just a moment, and particularly this idea you had there about these decisions in the living room, because there, there's one bill that we've been talking about in education this week, and one to come next week that I feel like we should talk about on the show a little bit too. Uh, one, one, let's talk about Senator Lincoln Fillmore's bill. This is Senate Bill 114 about school curriculum. Essentially, the, it's, it's like a new process for materials that are taught to our children. A district would have to post those materials, um, textbooks, the videos, things like that, uh, for parents to review. There's a 30-day period to review uh, those materials, and then a public hearing and a vote on those materials. Uh, I'd love to get your perspectives from all three of you about that, because that is you know, the first time we've seen a little bit like that, where the parents are you know, have to do something, and also curious what the difference is between instructional materials, which what you have to do, and supplemental materials. You want to start first, Senator? Sure. You know, the hard part that you know we're constantly trying to deal with is what's fact and what's fiction about educational materials, right? And people feel like, hey, I don't know what's going on in the classroom, right? And and you saw, you know, for the first time during the Zoom classroom days of the early pandemic. You had parents that were like overhearing stuff and they were concerned about things they were hearing, right? Whether they had the most information or whether they you know, could follow the water all the way to the row on the academic thought, they were concerned, right? And so you had demands for transparency. And I think that bill uh, is really an effort to provide transparency. Um, I think this is just me. When my kids bring stuff home, that they bring the syllabus home. I, I'm able to see the reading materials most of the time. So some of that transparency already exists in my kids' classroom, but maybe there are other places where it doesn't exist. And maybe, you know, I don't know if putting it out on a website's really the thing. I, I'm not sure what the right mechanism is, but making sure that parents have a syllabus so they can at least see what's going on in the classroom. Lindsay, talk about this transparency idea, which is I think what Senator Fillmore is saying it's about also. Of course, we've seen a lot of big debates about education uh, in, in recent months and recent years, right? And I think that uh, the, the, the balance as this bill gets debated will end up being, if parents are an important piece of the puzzle. As a parent, I like to think I'm an important piece of my kids' education. But also, we've got to make sure that by doing that, it's not kind of adding an extra layer of, of, of uh, on our teachers who have just done so much this year. This is, this is what some of the debate has been about, right? Is, is this, these, these teachers over the last couple of years have just been absolute superheroes, right? And, and under incredibly difficult conditions. And, and I think that's, that's going to be the balance is how do we make sure parents have a, a good piece in their kids' education? And how do we make sure that, that teachers who, who, are, who are such great um, pieces too, how do we make sure they can do their jobs the best? Um, and how do we make sure we can we can give them the best possible environment to, to really give our kids all of the things that they're so skilled and incredible at? Um, that's going to be the real debate, I think. So, Representative, these teachers have not been as supportive. No, no, I think they feel, and, and this has got a long history to it, Jason, in terms of uh, public education professionals feeling that they're being micromanaged by the legislature, that there's a lot of backseat driving on the details of how they do their work, they are professionals, they're highly trained, they're doing incredibly difficult work. We don't pay them enough for a variety of reasons. If McKay and I were in a classroom, we'd last about 10 minutes before we run, would run out screaming. I'm a substitute teacher, right? <laughs> and, and I have a teaching degree, so I'm, I'm, I, got, I got more than 10 minutes in. <laughs> so, so I think that they rightly feel that there are times when we are far too quick at the legislature to second guess what they do. And that we need to recognize that sometimes 
sometimes the best thing to do is, I, I'm all for transparency, I think it's a great idea, but I don't know that we are as careful enough to safeguard and protect and honor what our professional, our teaching professionals are trying to do and recognizing that they're doing the best job they can. I'm all for transparency. What I'm not in favor of is the legislature stepping in to say, this is what you will or will not teach, or uh, making it so, so tightly reining them in that what we're actually doing is allowing uh, families to go in and say to teachers, if you don't teach this, we're going to raise a fuss and, and create problems for you in terms of your morale and your ability to do your job as a professional. Education is probably the place that government touches families the most, right? It probably touches the most in individually, right? Maybe the roads, I guess, you know, but you aren't talking to a government official. The roads are open, they're transparent, you know, the lanes most of the time, I know, you know. Um, but you know, every day the government is involved in education and every day those kids are in the classroom, the DMV is once a year, you know, and people hate the DMV. Can you imagine if, you know, they felt the same way about education? You know, it's really great though, I, I think some modicum of transparency and making sure parents are involved isn't gonna hurt anything. I think they'll find that right balance before the session's over. Mm -hmm. uh, really quickly, just a preview for this coming week. Maybe Lindsay, you've heard this too. I understand we may have a voucher bill coming back. Maybe this next week, also backpack funding. Anyone want to verify this one? Well, what you come up with is a form of vouchers by another name, and that's what the backpack funding is. I mean, there's a desire to come up with something that is more politically palatable with the people of the state of Utah, but accomplishes the same things as vouchers tried to accomplish over a decade ago and went down in flames on. The best answer to what's taught in the classroom and what's not taught in the classroom and transparency and all those stuff is giving people the financial ability to make a decision about where they go to school and how their kids are educated. I think it's the best. So these are also the living room decisions? Living room decision. Interesting. Uh, this is going to have to be the, the last comment on this today. We'll follow this particular bill very closely over this next week uh, when we're, we're coming. Uh, anything else, Representative Key, we need to watch this week in our last 20 seconds? Uh, no, I mean, we, we're constantly doing a wide range of stuff. I'd encourage people to get online and watch what we do and let us know what you think. Yeah, I've been amazed at the access this, this year, particularly people online in every single meeting we've been having. Thank you very much for your comments uh, today. Uh, very interesting conversations have a big impact on all of us. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.